Welcome to the Bible Fee Podcast, and uh, here we are at the uh, the beginning of 2024, at the start of a new year. And I guess it's at this kind of time that people might think about taking on the task of reading the Bible. It's not an inconsiderable task. It's it's not necessarily easy to do. But you know, going to a new year, New Year's resolution, I'm going to tackle the Bible this year and, and read it for myself. So what we're going to do in this episode is is just have a little look, a little taster, if you like, on what I find to be a really fascinating aspect of how the Bible works. I'm here with, with Dan Weatherall, who's going to help us with thinking about reading the Bible. Hi, Dan. Hi, Paul. I think it's always useful to, when thinking about the Bible, not to think of it as one book, but it, it's 66 books, and it's, so it's effectively a library of of books and you don't need to get very far into reading them to realize there are connections between these different books by different writers in different times and places there's the subject matter that that cuts across those books references to events characters locations and all that kind of thing but there's more subtle connections between them as well and that's what we're going to explore in this episode there's a word for it and the word is intertextuality so that's what we're going to talk about okay it's a good word it's a big word it's a fancy frenchified latin word so let's define it first of all dan what does that word mean well it rolls off the tongue doesn't it intertextuality (laughs) um so uh, you know let's let's just use a a very reputable source wikipedia to to help us define it just let's let's see what that says and and which so it defines intertextuality as the shaping of a text's meaning by another text either through deliberate quotation or allusion or by interconnections between works being perceived by the audience or reader so i mean it really i think it's just stating the obvious really actually it's a fancy word for the fact that books or literature or art of any kind isn't just produced in a vacuum, is it? So mm. books are, are written and they reflect things that are external to themselves. They have intertextual links with or, or textual links yeah. with other things effectively. And, and you know, okay. you expand that out to, you know, books will have links to cultural events that are happening around them or previous books or, or other genres and things yeah. like that. So no work of art, a book, literature is produced in a vacuum, it's it's likely to be referencing or being referenced by other things going on around it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I recently rediscovered Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Um, I, oh, I lovely. Read, read a few of those when I was younger, but the, the audiobook versions of The Colour of Magic and uh, what is the next one, The Light Fantastic, are, are, yeah. are pretty yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and they're like the perfect example of you know the the Discworld series is famous, isn't it, for satire and parody? And it, yeah. yeah, we should just review the review yeah. the Discworld series. Yeah. But you know, you got all all sorts of you know parodying like other fantasy genres, like how magic works and levels of wizards mm. and things like that. And there's like a, a reference to the Big Bang, the Big Bang, or the steady state theory of how the universe came to be, and, and things like right. that, right. all throughout it. N- none of it is explicitly referenced. It's all just alluded to all throughout right so there's you know textual allusions all the way through so okay. you know there, there you go there's there's just one little example out out there so like our principal source for the ancient world is the asterix and obelix stories our principal source for cosmology is terry project that's, right. that's right that's okay. right yeah <laughs> excellent okay so so that's that's a set of books literature that is 
referencing things out there in the world and society in general. If I was to think of an example of, we might take the Star Wars films. So there's been nine of those now, and I'm not an expert in them. But the later ones particularly have loads of open and obvious references and allusions Mm. back to the earlier films and some hidden things as well that fans of the films call Easter eggs that they find in in the background of shots and this kind of thing that that people like to spot. So from Terry Pratchett and Star Wars, just from those examples, it shouldn't surprise us that we would get references between the different books of the Bible. It's a normal thing for, for literature to do. And I guess that's what we're going to think about in the rest of this episode yeah Um, so not star wars intertextuality but biblical intertextuality yeah let's eminently more exciting yeah yeah (laughs) and Um, more complex yeah and more complex yeah (laughs) and maybe a little bit more profound we'll see i mean just just before we get into it just something to to share that's maybe a bit more personal as well and and it's an interesting feature of the community that that we're part of you know we're both christadelphians and yeah it it's it's a feature of Christadelphian Bible study, like a, a hallmark almost, that this is practiced, you know, the the looking for links and connections across the mm. entire length of scripture and and uh, quotations, allusions, connections, links, par- parallels and and types and patterns and things like that. It's a really deep, rich tra- tradition. But interestingly, to the point that at some point, I was sort of almost being so put off by what seemed like fanciful and reader-generated links and connections all the yeah. time. And and it's easy to then become a hardened skeptic about this. And, you know, it's a bit like having Jesus appear to you in a, in a slice of toast, for example, you know, when you <laughs> pop, or you see yeah. a Virgin Mary in the, in the clouds and that kind of thing. We're, we're predisposed to seeing patterns, aren't we? So when they're not really there. So I felt a little bit like that for certainly a length of time. One thing that helped me rediscover this, I almost feel like finding it on a sure footing was reading Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. And that really, in just its own way, unlocked it for me again with some guardrails and so on. And it definitely is a feature. The Bible is absolutely full of intertextual allusions and quotations. And we can yeah, discover that yeah. without without making up our own patterns. Yeah. And, and actually, just going back to that definition that you quoted from Wikipedia, it said either they're deliberate connections between different books and texts or their connections perceived by the reader. Mm. So there are both of those in that definition. But yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean, that that it's, it is possible to get carried away. And what we need is just how do we put some control around that so that we know we're doing it in a way that is responsible and respectful of, of the text that, that we're looking at. I, I guess I've read the Robert Alter book as well. I think you recommended it to me. And sort of in line with that, the Bible Project series on how to read the bible talk about design patterns and identifying character and settings and plot and things like that are, are really helpful in thinking through what the narrative is doing okay well let's go back to that that definition so some of them some of these connections are deliberate quotations mm. one writer of one text quoting another and some some are perceived by the reader so let, let's talk about quotations first then so let's start in the old testament and a pretty foundation passage in exodus 34 so this is the time when moses goes up the mountain and and has the lord passing before him and proclaims his glory that you know that that very famous yeah. passage yeah. so so exodus 34 and verse Six, I'll just say this, I'll just read it to you. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And that's a absolutely monumental passage, isn't it, about yeah. the character of God. So you get that referred to very directly in the Numbers 14 and verse 17. We're in, we're in the middle of a speech of Moses and he's basically pleading to God and he directly quotes this by saying, Numbers 14, 17, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, and then here's the quote, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the, guilt, clear the guilty and, and so on. And so he's, there's a very deliberate reference back. You know, it's very obvious. Yeah, and they're quite close together. That's right. In, in yeah. the sequence of events. Yeah, that's right. But then with this this passage, there's quite a few places later on now as well throughout the the Old Testament where there seems to be quotations of Exodus 34, but it isn't telling you it's a quotation. But if you've got Exodus 34 in your head, you'll see it. Mm. For example, let's have a look at Psalm 103. So it's verse 8. Okay. So just the one verse, Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So there it is. That's familiar. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. There's a, there's yeah. a clear reference. There's actually a reference to, to Moses before, the verse before. So very, very clear quote. So, you know, And then there's a really good one in Jonah. So let's go right into the minor prophets. So Jonah 4. Okay. So the story of Jonah, of course, being the prophet, the reluctant prophet, he runs away. He's been he's been told to go and uh, preach to Nineveh, the Assyrian, the terrible city, the the Ninevites, and uh, he doesn't want to. He runs away, and in the end, he eventually goes to them after he's thrown in the sea, swallowed by a fish. He's having a rough time, <laughs> and then he gets spat out, and God tells him to go to Nineveh again. So so he he, he does and preaches to them, and they repent. And, and then this is what he says. So he was really unhappy with that. Chapter four, verse one, and then verse two, he says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So you can see that there. Agree? That's yeah, there a it is again. quote. Yeah. yeah. From Exodus 34. Yeah. So, and, and this is this is really fascinating, but this, this becomes like the key moment in this book. Everyone knows Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish, whatever. But really, you know, th this is <laughs> this is the drama. It's this chapter. This is what's going on underneath it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he tells you why he ran away. And he's running away because, because of the character of God that he, he knows, and he knows it from Exodus 34. And this, this whole book becomes a, like an exploration of that statement in Exodus 34. God has said he is like this. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So if he's that, then what does he do when Gentiles, you know, the mm. worst Gentiles, the, the terrible, evil Ninevites, the Assyrians, what does he do when they repent? Well, he will obviously accept them that's mm. and and this this whole book is is exploring yeah. that and you know that's, so that's he, really will he be that will he be that kind of god to gentiles as well as yeah. to people of Israel? yeah 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 and 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 it's yeah. it's clearly you know in the affirmative yes he will yeah. and yet the the whole book is wrestling with the fact through jonah through <laughs> through this character mm. is wrestling with the fact that he will be we don't really want our god to be like this we'd rather him smash our enemies <laughs> and and d destroy them but 
but it's it's illuminating God's character there. And and, yeah. and by picking up on that quote, I think is is absolutely crucial to this book. If if you didn't know Exodus thirty four and you hadn't picked up on that, I don't know. You mean you'd, you'd get the sense of what it was about, but. But this is a, a really key key point, I think. And I suppose the other side of that statement in Exodus 34 is that God by no means clears the guilty. And what ends up happening is that the Assyrians do wreak destruction in the land of Israel, the northern kingdom. And there, there is an element of judgment. But seeing that, that thread, so Exodus 34 is this bold statement about God, and then it reappears as the text in different books, in different contexts, explores the relationship, how that works in practice in the relationship between God and human beings, and how that moves the story forward. While these are fairly obvious quotations from Exodus 34, that there are more connections than that. It's, it's not just that, it's illusions as well, isn't it? What about... What about those? Some, some things that are less obvious, maybe. Yeah, that's right. So, so here we start exploring the Easter eggs. You know, so illusions. What what could they be? I think you'd spot them when you see lots of keywords or phrases. So something that's repeated, and then repeated elsewhere, and mm. it's going to be a stronger illusion if there's several of those things that are repeated, and and that almost generates a pattern. So a little bit like you said, there's a pattern to the story, yeah. and and you say, oh, hold on a minute, I've. I've read this before. That's yeah. the, the Bible project design pattern, as, as they call them. So, so those sorts of things are what we're looking for. So let's look at a, a New Testament example, which, which actually will take us back into the old as well. So Matthew chapter 17, it's a pretty enigmatic incident. It's the transfiguration of Jesus. So this is Jesus going up on a high mountain. Mm. Interestingly, Moses went up to a high mountain, didn't he, when the glory of God appeared to him. And He's transfigured, so his appearance is sort of changed almost. So that's verse 2 of chapter 17. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. So there's some kind of visionary experience going on here. And verse 3, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So, so this is Jesus up in a mountain with just Peter, James and John, three of his disciples. And he's there yeah. with Moses and Elijah in some kind of vision. And, and straight away, that's evoking hopefully, in your head, <laughs> a lot of allusion to, to things in the Old Testament, including what we've just seen, uh, you know, Exodus 34, uh, Moses on a mountain. But there's other times where Moses comes down from a mountain and his face is shining. There's Elijah goes to a mountain, yeah. doesn't he? And, uh, and here's the earthquake, wind and fire, and then a still small voice. And it's again, the, yeah. the character of God appearing. So if you, you've got the Old Testament in your head, you'll have all these illusions. They'll be sort of popping for you and you'll see them. Yeah. But I, I think you can be a bit more specific. So Peter says in verse four, he doesn't really know what to say other, other than, oh, it's good we're here. We'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. And then he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wow. That's interesting, mm. isn't it? And next verse tells us that it was a vision because Jesus says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So so there's this visionary experience that, that happened to the disciples and Jesus. Yeah. And there's a few key things there. This this voice from heaven, 
listen to him who's mentioned and then, and they're terrified as well and Jesus says rise and have no fear remember those things and then just come back to to the old testament to Deuteronomy chapter 18 shall i read this one yeah verse 13 to through to 16 so who is speaking here is this moses saying in verse 13 you shall be blameless before the lord your god for these nations which you are about to dispossess listen to fortune tellers and to diviners but as for you the lord your god has not allowed you to do this the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the lord your god at horeb on the day of the assembly when you said let me not hear again the voice of the lord my god or see this great fire any more lest I die. Right, there we go. There's a little extract there from, from Deuteronomy, from the words of Moses. He's saying, look, you're going into this, this, this these nations where they listen to fortune tellers, to, they listen to diviners, but don't do that. The, the Lord your God is going to raise up a prophet like me, like Moses, from your brothers, and you'll listen to him. So listen to this one. And this is just like when you asked God at Horeb, which is the other word for Sinai, yeah. isn't it? Sinai. Yep. Just like you asked God, And when you said, we don't want to hear the voice of the Lord, we don't want to see this great fire, we don't want to hear the voice of God, because, you know, they're terrified about it. And and so the Lord says, you know, and it's actually verse 18 here, where he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will just speak to them, and so on. So hopefully, you can you can see some allusions. Yeah, it's accentuating the parallel between Jesus or Jesus emerging as the prophet like yeah Moses the prophet greater than Moses and it's on a mountain there's a transformer the visionary experience there's the cloud on the mountain there's yeah and, and those that are present are afraid all of those little connections are there to to help us link what's happening on the mount with Jesus back to back yeah to yeah Moses. so we get a bit more detail if we go further back to Exodus 20 so Exodus 20 is the passage with the Ten Commandments and the whole narrative starts in Exodus 19. They arrive in Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and then there's this great big cloud that comes on the mountain, there's smoke, there's fire, it's it's terrifying. And then they hear this voice, the voice of God is, is effectively calling out these these commandments. And then verse 18 of Exodus 20, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So that's the background. So putting those things together in, in the transfiguration, which is a very peculiar incident, isn't it? And mm. you know, we're we're, t- we're tackling a, a a strange incident there in Matthew. There's a a real rich allusion there to the things that have happened in the Old Testament, and and particularly to Sinai, where where God's voice comes. The people are terrified by it, and they say, "Look, we want to listen to you, Moses. We don't want to hear that that voice." And then in Deuteronomy, Moses picks it up, or God through Moses picks it up and says. That's right. You don't have to hear the voice of God, as it were, with this lightning and thunders and so on. But you will have a prophet like me. Make sure you don't listen to the fortune tellers, the diviners, but listen to the prophet like me. Someone from among your brothers, he will come and he will be the one to whom you listen. And there's all these other allusions like 
do not fear and things like that that, that really make that connection. What the transfiguration passage is doing, amongst maybe other things, is absolutely establishing Jesus as that prophet mm. in Deuteronomy 18, isn't it? The prophet like Moses. He's the one to whom you should listen. Yeah, you've got Moses and Elijah mentioned there. But while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, a voice from the cloud. That really sends you back to to that Exodus chapter 20, which points back to Moses. But Elijah is there as well. So there's more than one thing. There is. Yeah. Going on in, in the connections that are yeah. pinging out of that. Yeah. That that short passage and you know what paul as well there's more than one thing going on in what we're saying as well because if if you paid attention to the previous episode of our podcast uh you would have heard about the ending of the sections of the old testament the mystery deaths as lawrence was talking about of moses (laughs) and elijah and how that pointed right forward to the things of jesus and that little community of people waiting for the prophet like moses and so that, there we go. We, we've had into te- into podcast illusion there, <laughs> which which hopefully is is building Very on good. the the things. Was it that, deliberate? D- hmm. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely wasn't. There we go. But it's a happy yeah. coincidence as yeah. we're talking through this. So so yeah, it, ab- the way that these illusions and intertextual references they build up this worldview that you have. The yeah. biblical authors have this this view, and and if we get into the world of that, it will be you know a real rich really help our, help us understand the meaning mm. I, th- I think i've got another inter podcast um connection in that <laughs> what we're reading here is is from matthew chapter 17 so you know if we started at the beginning of that gospel we've already read 16 chapters and there's already been a whole host of narratives that are deliberately pointing us back to moses and and saying that jesus is the new moses effectively he was he was hidden at, at birth from an evil ruler that was looking to slaughter the infants. He fled to Egypt. He went down into Egypt and he came out of Egypt again. He spent some time in the wilderness. He was tested and tempted in the wilderness. And, you know, he gave a speech on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. No, so there's been a whole mm. host of things. And so when we get to chapter 17 and we start to see the connections between Moses here in in this strange transfiguration event, it's not we're already being led to that by a, a whole host of other previous connections. And the inter-podcast connection <laughs> is that you, Dan, have done a series on Matthew. And one of those episodes, I, I think, talks particularly about those connections with, with Moses and Jesus being presented here as his, the greater prophet, the new Moses. Yeah. Um, yeah, we for, did. For salvation of, yeah. of God's people. So. Yeah. So we've covered a bit there already. Let's try now and think about, as we're doing this, we've got quotations and we've got allusions and we can see those connections, but then we can make our own connections. But what about guidelines for, for doing that? I guess, you know, as, as you're reading, I, I would just say a, a resource that can be quite useful if you've got a Bible with a cross-reference margin, that often gives you these links between books where quotations are, are being made and allusions. And there's another resource called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, which is like your Bible margin, but on steroids, that, that gives gives a whole broader range of, of connections and allusions. But as we're reading and we're thinking of our own connections, you know, what what guidelines could we use? I mean, 
do we have to say that the writer needs to be familiar with the text that we see a connection with? Is that something we would have to say? I would have thought that's a, that's a fair assumption to make, definitely. And we need to think both of the, the writer, don't we? And also the, the audience. So is the author of the biblical text, is he going to think that the audience is going to pick up on these yeah. illusions? So we've got two, two ends of the communication there, haven't we? The, the writer and then the audience. That's one way of us trying to work out and identify the intention of the writer. What are they intending to convey? And that, that helps us maybe narrow down or give us a focus for seeing this, mm. I think, rather than wildly making lots of yeah. wild okay. connections that seem to have, serve no purpose for what the okay. author's trying to say to the audience. I suppose the only other thing there is, is I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there are so many echoes and allusions to different parts of scripture because the author is saturated in it so much. It's part of the author's vocabulary. It's part of, you know, the holy men of God who spoke in times past, these people mm. who had the Bible in their head. So so when they come to write other parts of scripture, it's so much a part of their vocabulary yeah. that, that they're kind of there, irrespective of perhaps what the audiences yeah. would have perhaps understood. So, so I think it's good to sort of bear that in mind as well. You can see that as a product of a time in which books are not as readily available. Um, so the written version of the text where you could go and refer to it and quote it as we do, there's much more a culture of memorizing the texts of the parts of the Bible. And, and that means it's in your head and is there to call on almost just as part of the way the biblical speakers and, and writers communicate. And you do get passages where they're clearly quoting, but they're quoting a mixture of places mm. from different parts of the Old Testament and stitching three or four different quotes together because it's so embedded in the way that they're thinking. Right. So let's just broaden out our thinking of this a little more because God is the ultimate source and author of the 66 books that we have, maybe others, but we've got 66. So let's, let's work with that. That's enough to be going on with. If... If scripture is breathed out by God and we have what God intended us to have, then there could be all sorts of connections in there that God was in control of in forming that communication that the human writers perhaps didn't appreciate. We know from 1 Peter 1, for example, that the prophets, when things were happening to them and they were saying things, they were looking to understand what was what was this about Christ and the, the suffering and the glory that should follow, but not really understanding how it was playing out. In, in their lives. So there are things that they didn't understand, which became obvious later with Jesus. Is that something that we can factor into these connections? Yeah, so I think that's definitely something to that you need to con we need to consider as well. So far, we've been looking at how later authors know of earlier texts, and they quote to them, they, they quote them, or they allude to them. Uh, but But now there's this other feature, if, if God's involved in all of this, then there's no time restriction on this. God, you know, there, there could be earlier texts which anticipate future events, that anticipate future books of the Bible. Not, mm. not just talking in the terms of predictive prophecy, but just the way the texts are written are alluding to things that would happen in the future. And of course, there's, there's no reason to say that that can't be the case. God's spirit is behind it. But I, I suppose this is the realms of, are we seeing patterns in a slice of toast? Or are we seeing something that's deliberate? So I think it all comes back to we need to think about what the purpose of this communication is. We always get sort of get back to this. You know, what is the purpose of this communication originally to the original audience? But what's the purpose of the communication to us as well? So a bit like the Old Testament is this whole collection of lots of different mm. books per 
purposely written to to people in ancient times, lots of different people. But actually, in the last podcast, me and Lawrence were talking about this whole collection of writings and how it was structured had a had its own purpose, speaking to the people at the time of Jesus. And there was an intention in its organisation and, and those allusions and how it pointed forward to, to Jesus. You can see that and it makes sense in terms of the intention of that communication from God. So if we kind of start with that, you know, does this connection that I'm seeing, is it supportive? Is it complementary to the message that is being conveyed by the speaker, writer, whatever, to the original audience? And if it fits within that, then yes, it, it feels like something that can be can be built on. Okay, so are we going to share some examples and kind of test each other, see if we see the, the connection? Good, give it a go. <laughs> Should we do that? Have you got one for me? Have you got one for me first? <laughs> I, I've got one for you, but the notes tell you what <laughs> what mine is. Whereas you're going to spring a surprise on yeah, me. But you, yeah, but you, right. the notes don't tell me what it's referencing. It just asks the question. Oh, <laughs> okay, well, let's try this then. Pick some examples where we think there's an allusion to something else in Scripture and, and see if we pick up on it. So the example I've got for you is is the, the lesser-known prophet of Zephaniah. So let's have a look at Zephaniah, and we're just going to look at four verses, the first four verses of Zephaniah chapter 1. Okay. So here we go. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. There's our context, and this is what he says. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I'll stop there. So what intertextual connections are you getting from that? So I'm thinking of the flood, the flood of Noah, the mm. sweeping away man and beast. Yeah. Yeah, off cutting the face off of mankind earth. from the face of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And what the prophet's talking about is is something that's going to happen to Judah and, and Jerusalem. So yeah. why is there that connection? I guess because the prophet wants to emphasize, well, this is going to be an utter disaster. Yeah, yeah. For Judah and Jerusalem. Sort and of the, the severity of it. Yeah, the pattern of judgment and the I suppose they have probably filled Judah and Jerusalem with violence like the earth was yeah. full of violence back in yeah. that narrative. So cool. Yeah, okay. I, th well, I think that's a valid pretty, intertextual pretty, link. <laughs> pretty easy for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about this one, though. <laughs> 2 Corinthians okay. 10. So, I mean, this this might be tricky to work through because I think it's uh, <laughs> I, th I, I think it's valid. and I, I But it's littered throughout this letter, 2 Corinthians. So this is Paul. You know the background to Corinthians, don't you? Or 2 Corinthians, where he's yeah. really... Yeah. They basically have been persuaded to reject him, effectively, haven't they? by the super apostles, ironically so-called, yes. later on in this yeah. letter. Yeah. So he's talking about those. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10, he says, For they say, uh, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So people have been talking about Paul and that's what they say about him. So, okay, he's good at writing letters, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Does that Okay. Does that, that on its own, does that on its own <laughs> make you think of anything? I mean, um, I wouldn't necessarily think it would, but... I'm sorry. No. So no. do a bit more. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the f <laughs> first chapter. <laughs> this might be a long episode. <laughs> <laughs> 2 Corinthians 1. Okay. Verse 5. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we uh, are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Okay. Any so, idea? Well, the sharing in Christ's suffering, mm. in his weakness of his bodily presence. So Paul is is demonstrating those sufferings to the people yeah. he's writing to. Any particular text? Or not yet. I'm looking at the cross-references. I don't think it's in there. I don't think anyone's discovered this yet, Paul. <laughs> is this just is... a pattern and a slice of toast? <laughs> so, uh, okay, this is a cross-reference to chapter 4 and verse 10, where he says he is afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of yeah. Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Yeah. Is that and verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus right. may be manifest. So, but here's another one, chapter 6, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, servants of God. Ah, is this um, a connection you're saying to Isaiah? It is, yes. Am I getting getting warmer? Yeah, you're getting warmer, yeah. Okay, so it's the servant songs Yeah. in, in Isaiah where there is... Maybe starting out as a nation, but then there's an individual. That... Yeah. All right. And you, you'll be a judge, and then all the listeners will be a judge of this. But you know, perhaps what I what I I think there's Isaiah fifty three particularly is in Paul's mind a lot. I mean, he refers to Isaiah all the time. And then when he gets this, he hears that they're saying about him that his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. You know, he's got Isaiah fifty three in his head. He was despised and rejected of men. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this person that came to save them, which in its fullest expression is Jesus. Yeah, that's starting to fit together and it, uh, yeah, pop out a bit. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it was a little harder than my example. It was, it was harder, yeah. <laughs> to be, was, that's uh, good, that's good. But, but yeah, yeah, there's quite a few allusions, possibly allusions mm. to it throughout the letter. But if you read through the letter and you've got Isaiah 53 in your head, I just think Paul is seeing the experiences that he's going through as sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he's realizing yeah. that what he's going through is effectively what Jesus has gone through. Rejection by his the people he's trying to help. And yeah. he's participating in the atoning work of Jesus, effectively. Which is fascinating. You know, and if that's right, that's an absolutely brilliant way of seeing the call that Jesus going to the cross is, isn't this kind of We've talked about this on other episodes, haven't we? It isn't kind of this transactional thing. It is this yeah. this call to join him and, you know, effectively your life becomes yeah. like his. And, and Paul was, you know, really big on that. And as we read Second Corinthians, you, once you've made the connection, yeah. start start to find other allusions to it. Yeah. Okay. One, one that maybe needs well, testing a little bit more. Well, let's uh, hear what people think about that suggestion from you, Dan. So I think it's probably time to wrap up. I think it is, yeah. Uh, but So we've there's loads of, of similar kind of connections and echoes like that. And hopefully we've demonstrated it can be a really engaging part of, of reading the Bible to identify these and to think about them. Are they deliberate that the writer has left there for us? Or, or is it a connection that we've made? Because all sorts of different parts of the Bible are in our heads. And I think what uh, what the last five, ten minutes have demonstrated is how useful it is when you see a connection <laughs> to try and explain it to someone else. Share it with, with someone. Uh, they see it too, maybe not immediately. 
But that is, I think, probably the best guardrail uh, to uh, not going too far with these things is you know, explain it to someone else, talk it through, see what they think. Do they see it as well? So I hope all of that that we've been through helps you as you tackle reading the Bible. As, as we say, we're ordinary people aiming to understand the Bible better. So hopefully it helps with that. So thanks for listening. As always, follow the Bible Feed on um, Facebook or Twitter. Take a look at our website, biblefeed.org, for more uh, resources and show notes and so on that go with our episodes. So thank you for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.